Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in today to the show. Yesterday we began um, talking about the Youth Council and we we're going to get into all the different councils uh, over the next couple days, uh, including today, which uh, today we're going to open the show talking about the Adult Council. The Adult Council is part of U.S. soccer. It's part of the four main councils that uh, U.S. soccer, you know, splits itself up into. It's, it's kind of these categories. Um, I, I use the word silos a lot on the show, talking about uh, the councils. And in this case, when we're talking about the adult council, it's a little bit different from the youth council. With the youth council, you've got a, a multitude of youth sanctioning organizations operating in that space in the adult council it's a little bit different it's primarily not solely but primarily the u.s adult soccer association usasa and uh, they operate um and and partner with state associations for adult programming um the, so, so it's a little bit different setup than than the the youth space where you where you have a lot more competing interest from within the federation. The difference is in the adult space, they're they're one of their big issues is unsanctioned soccer. Now it exists in the youth space as well for sure, uh, but in the adult space, I think it's even if it's it's even bigger. It's an even bigger issue, and part of it is is why do I need if I just want to play in my local league and there is no promotion and relegation in this country. There is no way for my team to to win my city league and move into a state competition and into a regional competition, etc. So in the absence of that, which U.S. adult soccer could, could do, and I think they should do, and they've talked about it before, but they haven't done it. And so in the absence of that, what is the motivation for you to register your league and your team with U.S. soccer? There really isn't one. Now, they'll tell you their marketing pitches, but if you actually look at it, I mean, there's nothing they can offer you that you can't get on your own. I mean, you can get liability insurance and you can run your own programming. You can set up your own ID card system for your league. Like, There's nothing you need from a state association or the federation if you, if you have no, uh, you know, portability of your club, meaning portability, not moving it from this city to the next, but portability from within a league system, meaning I can win my city league, move up to a state league, move up to a regional league, etc. cetera, uh, eventually reaching professional status, professional level. That, that opportunity right now does not exist. So why sanction your club? Why sanction your league with U.S. adult soccer? And there's not a very good reason for it. So when we look at some of the issues plaguing adult soccer, one of the things that that I've seen recently is this theme that they have, they've begun to focus on making lifelong friends, friendships through soccer, and that's that's a that's that's a great motto uh, for for anyone who's just you know in the game from a recreational standpoint. Just just we just want to have fun. That that that's fine, but competitively. There's, there's a lot of people interested competitively in amateur soccer. They would love to, to build a club and build it as big as they can. And if it is able to one day support itself and maybe in, attract bigger investors, you know, become professionalized. That's what the natural order of things are around the world. So what do we do for them? Well, USASA has not set up a pyramid of leagues. They've not gone about and built out a league structure. They're, in a lot of states, there there is no state league for adults. There is no connection between a city league and a state league in terms of 
winning your city league and promoting into a state league situation and from there a regional situation that that just isn't available so instead what we have is competing leagues or league wars now we're going to get to more league wars on tomorrow's show when we talk about the professional council but right now in the amateur space there are league wars even now in the amateur space for example you have the national premier soccer league that 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 is operating in the amateur space it's sanctioned by u.s adult soccer you also have the upsl the united premier soccer league it's operating also in the adult amateur space then you have regional leagues like the gulf coast premier league and others around this country that operate multi-state regional leagues that are very similar to the NPSL. They just don't have a national collection of these leagues. They're primarily located in, in, in a handful of states. And they're operating basically the same level as the NPSL and the UPSL in terms of what a season looks like, what a, what a club looks like. And so what we have is a bunch of disjointed competing leagues, clubs who jockey for a spot in one league over another based off of a word in, in, a, in, in the title of the league, thinking that it gives them more notoriety to say we're in a national league when you're playing in the same league you were before, but now we call ourselves national. What does that sound like? What we talked about yesterday in the youth soccer space. Within the youth council, this happens a lot. You hear words like elite and premier and we are world class. We're academy. And in the adult amateur space, you hear that a lot as well. That we are operating at a higher level than anyone else. But without any kind of pyramid of connected leagues, without leagues sanctioned by USASA in a tiered manner i.e. Division 1, 2, 3, or if you want to start amateur and, and put it below what you see in the professional space, then, you know, at that point, you could say one league is higher than another or one league is better than another. But right now, it's just personal preference. It's just your opinion or someone else's opinion, or in some cases, it's just a marketing slogan. So in the adult council, What we see is a lot of communities, a lot of organizations, a lot of people who have said, hey, man, we would love to build a club. We we would love to do something really cool in our community, in our city. Let's start here in this amateur space, whether it's USL League Two, whether it's the NPSL, whether it's uh, the UPSL or the GCPL, or even playing in our local city league, our local state league. Let's just, let's just start a club. Let, let's do something. But they quickly find out that there is just the Wild West. And there's no clear pathway. Where do we go? Do we need to go from our city league to our state league to the UPSL to the NPSL to the USL League 2? Is, is that the format? Well, no, because... None of those are set up higher than the other. And the only one that's a clear distinction would be if you're playing within a city or within your state versus, say, a regional setup. Once you get beyond a state league, everything else is really in the eye of the beholder. Now, sure, some leagues like the NPSL will say, we run things at a higher level. We charge more money. We make more demands on how you do what you do. And that, that, that may be so. That may be so for what you do. And, and you may feel that's necessary to provide a certain level of quality in terms of club operations. It doesn't necessarily mean you're better on the field, but you might feel better about yourself and your club and your organization, your status off the field. There are plenty of clubs that have no fancy league they're attached to that could wipe the floor with teams uh, 
who are playing in those leagues. And that's the problem. The problem is, is our entire system, our youth system, as we talked about yesterday within the youth council, and now today, the adult council system, both are not set up to have the cream rise to the top. We don't have a system of connected leagues. And that's where the USASA could step in and be a big leader. They could provide direction and guidance and lay out some guidelines and provisions that encourages connectivity, that gets a team formed in a city, in a community, to play in the city league, play in the state league, and then make it based off of their performance on the field into a regional league and into a national league. But the idea of a national league at amateur space for me is is crazy town. Why? This is a huge country. It's massive. Our geography is enormous. We're a continent-sized country, and we're asking amateur teams to travel distances that many European professional teams would never travel on a regular basis because they're playing within a a, a national structure that's much smaller, more confined, less travel, and we're asking amateur teams that don't have the money and the over the the overhead uh, and and the, the 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 resources to to do travel that puts a major strain on the club and its operations and its viability in the long term. The idea of a national league is absurd to me at a, at an at a at an amateur level. I mean, this country should be broken up into 16, at the very least, I think probably 32 regions for amateur play. Reduce the travel. Let the fans get to the games and let these clubs build viability. Now, out of that, if you have a cup competition or you have a a playoff at the end of something, maybe, maybe, but do we really need to crown a national champion at a de facto division four or five in this country? I don't think so. And the reason why we feel like we do is because the winners of these leagues aren't rewarded. So we had to create something in its place. And this is the problem with the U.S. soccer system. We have a bunch of one-eyed and three-eyed monsters in place of what should be a clear pathway for clubs. And within the adult council, it's a little bit easier to to figure this out and make it happen than in the youth space where you have so many competing sanctioning organizations. This is where the USASA could really step in to avoid and help U.S. soccer find its way. Create a clear pathway for clubs from their city and their community into a state, then into a regional league. Create this connectivity and help them help them come together and find through the collective better resources. Just like the youth space, if it hasn't been earned on the field, you shouldn't be driving past teams when nothing's been proven. So in the adult council, you you have your state associations and you primarily have USASA to deal with. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here to see this country reshape how we do amateur soccer and make a better way. Our sponsor this half hour and for the show today is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. They... Um, they make some really cool apparel. They make some really cool journals and uh, and planners. And, and they're not just your average planner. You can go in there and find some really cool soccer-specific notebooks. And uh, it might be the player. It might be for a coach. Whatever the case, you can find that today at ductickbrand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of that order at ductickbrand.com. We'll be right back with part one of our interview with Vince McConnell. 
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we are joined by Vince McConnell of McConnell Athletics. He is a personal performance coach. And uh, full disclosure, he, he works with uh, my oldest son, Jaden, and, uh, and I've seen his work up close. And I wanted to bring him on the show to talk a, a little bit about working with and training athletes. Um, and especially at a time right now where people are looking at getting back into the flow some parts of the country are starting to reopen and uh, there's never been a more critical time for athletes as they kind of work back into some of their, um, you know, uh, programs to, to do it the right way. And uh, so Vince, welcome to the show. Uh, happy to have you on. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, Dan, it's great to be here. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. We've, we've talked about doing this for a while and uh you know, uh, I guess one of the, the positive uh, uh, byproducts of the pandemic is is people have had a little bit more flexibility with scheduling. I know people like you are, are working around the clock uh, with, with, with your business and, and training athletes and it's not always easy to find that time. And so I appreciate you uh, being able to, to find some time, uh, you know, during, during this, this season of life to, uh, to be able to, to spend some time with us on the show today. So th thanks for you for to coming on. Well, I appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here. So, um, you know, before we get into some of the, the, the issues facing athletes right now where they're at home and they're trying to work back into some programming, I, I want to get a little bit of your background. What, what got you interested in the first place in performance coaching and, and, you know, beyond just your typical, I mean, anyone can go just get a, a basic gym membership and just go lift weights and, and, you know, and feel like, Hey, I've done something, but you take that further. It's, it's, it's much more involved than that for you. And where did that journey for you start? Well, for me, it was a, a bit unique compared to how guys get started today in the sense that really my journey in this or my path on this started when I was a kid, when I was, eight or nine years old, my uncle had a really strong impact on me in terms of his example of, of training and physical fitness, and he was always fit. And he lived in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And so when I would go down there, obviously we'd go to the beach, but then we would also go to a high school weight room where he was very good friends with their football coach. So imagine an eight or nine-year-old going along with their uncle or it could be the dad and just getting just loving doing things that would appear to be work meaning running stadium stairs running sprints um seeing how many push-ups they could do today you know things all the things to challenge me and then i played multiple sports when i was a kid um including soccer i played football baseball basketball martial arts was a big part of my life tennis, golf. I mean, there was very, other than maybe hockey, because there wasn't much in the way of hockey or even lacrosse, every other sport I had some experience with at an early age all the way through high school. So for me, it was both the enjoyment of the physicality of it, as well as it gave me an edge in performance when nobody else really was doing stuff like that back then. It's like me training Jaden now. There weren't a lot of Jadens back then that had the kind of talent he has and that applied themselves off of the field or outside of their, their um, specific sport. So me doing things like that, I noticed early how it did help me not only physically but psychologically. Then from there, playing sports all through high school, when I was 12 years old, my soccer coach at the time at Bayside Academy, and Daphne, Ralph Parati, again, had one of those. I was only with him for two years before I transferred to Fairhope High School. But the impact that Coach Parati had on me from a soccer standpoint was very symbolic in the sense of where he had great expectation of not only commitment to hard work, but also to, to win and to compete. And so I learned at a really early age how important competing was to be the best you could be at whatever you did so I applied that not only on the soccer field and in the sports season that I was in but outside of that getting up early in the morning doing applying myself to do those extra drills 
to, um, when nobody was standing over me, making me do it. And then so early on, I understood both the physical aspect of it as well as the psychological component that was involved in that. And, and then from there, um, growing up in a family that um, owned a car dealership, I was basically groomed to take over the car business. At, you know, say go to college, take over the family business and realize that that was not the path I could ever see myself doing just, you know, as good as that is and as lucrative as that can be, I was always geared more towards the physical part. And remember, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s. There wasn't a lot of jobs available for either personal trainers or even strength coaches. It was not that common. I mean, maybe football players trained in the weight room. Um, other sports, it was pretty much frowned upon to do any kind of real strength training or anything that would be considered, um, you know, um, athletic preparation like we know it today. I mean, you might go run or do something like that, but then it just wasn't something that was accepted. So for me to decide a career path in 1983 to be able to, it, it was, again, looked at as you're going to have to get a real job one day, you know, you're not going to be able to continue to do this. I was playing at the time uh, tennis and chose a professional tennis career that did not last very long at all. What it did allow me to do is to have connections down in Florida that allowed me to start training tennis players that were a lot better than I was, which, which was one of those negative, positive things. And then from there, I got indoctrinated into the performance aspect that directly affected uh, professional athletes. Andres Gomez, who won the French Open, that was uh, a guy that I worked with in the early 80s and as, as an example, and he was one of the first ones that had that big level of success that I worked with. And you know, from there, it was a matter of, um, I trained at a tennis academy working with speed and agility with athletes from multiple sports, primarily with tennis, and then um, developed my own business at an early, um, very early age when I was 18 and it's just you know basically progressed from there in different stages and different levels I've owned my own facility for the last 20 years but before that literally working out of shoe boxes or working out of whatever was available other facilities and things like that so the, the thing is it's one of those would I recommend everybody choose that path to do what I'm doing today absolutely not it's not something that I would talk somebody into, but if I couldn't talk them out of doing it, then that would be a good sign too. So it's a matter of, you know, do it the right way from the standpoint of the conventional way, go to school, go to college, you know, study, have a backup plan if it doesn't work out and all that, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, can you make it in this business or not? Because it's a lot more congested now than it was back then. But the disadvantage back then is it wasn't really known like it is today. You know, right. today there's, there's infomercials on become a fitness trainer in, you know, a weekend, you know, and you can't, you couldn't do that back then. You know, at least today you can get started easy, but it's about sustaining a career, sustaining that line of work. That's the, that's the real challenge with it. Yeah. It's like being a, a 22 year old, uh, take a weekend course and now you're a life coach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, then, you, then really you can get on YouTube and cram, enough and get some information to really appear like you know what you're doing right and that's that's the one negative about this line of work is that you can appear the expert in a day but it's all about can you sustain it and can you make the adjustments when it's necessary and that's where the real profession is it's handling the imperfection more than it is just knowing a plus b plus c equals d that's something you can teach somebody literally i could teach somebody in a in an hour However, it's okay, what happens when C gets skipped or you have to miss C? Where do you go from there? And those are the things that are difficult that most people don't want to look at or address. So they either ignore them where there's obviously compromise in that or they do them really bad, which is another compromise. So it's, uh, it's definitely a very challenging line of work or career because every athlete's different. You know, there's, if you give me 10 athletes, same age, same sport, all 10 of them are going to have variables that have to be addressed in a very unique way. You can put them all in the same program within a team, but they're all going to respond differently. So it's the same program, but the response, Daniel, is going to be different for each one. And you've got to know how to make the adjustments according to how they respond to the training. So when you were getting into this personal performance coach and working with athletes, um, you know, obviously 
there are personal trainers and they, they do different aspects of fitness. Some, you know, some specialize in trying to just do weight loss or work with older clients, et cetera. You, you obviously zeroed in on performance coaching and, and you do work with a lot of athletes. What was some of the things that you thought you knew when you first started in the, in the business years ago that now you you've kind of changed your thinking on now that you've had this experience uh, of decades of working with, you know, high performance athletes. It goes right back to what I was just saying about understanding that every single individual has a unique response to a specific, um, even an exercise. And, And that's something where I used to think there were more generalities that that you could apply across the board meaning that okay they're they're baseball players okay here's a baseball program and i used to write up baseball programs and then it was like this is baseball this is football this is soccer this is for basketball this is for volleyball and you just go down the line where i've realized now that you have to be even more specific not to where you're trying to make it complex because that that happens too you get those you know, functional trainer experts that are out there trying to overcomplicate everything. It's not a matter of overcomplicating. It's a matter of when things are complex, you have to have an answer. You have to find a solution, even if it takes you a little bit longer. You don't make things complex. Things will become complex, and you have to understand that principles are the foundation of everything that we do as a, as a performance strength coach, meaning that across the board, it doesn't matter if I'm training Um, an 88-year-old great-grandmother or if I'm training a 16-year-old high school athlete or a 25-year-old NFL player. The principles are going to be the same. Now, obviously, the specific applications of those principles will differ in all three categories. So I have to look at it as, okay, what do I need to see from what they're doing to either go its own target or I need to change something. So what's, what's changed for me, Daniel, the most is that assessment. Um, it was one of those things that one of my mentors, Charles Staley, way back, he said, every workout is an assessment. There, every single workout. There is not no such thing as plug and play, you know, when it comes to training. You can't. Now, there are times that you kind of feel like you're a little bit on cruise control with things. And, and that's why I hate the word maintenance, because maintenance to me, two things. Number one, it, um, it creates indifference. You know, when, when any athlete looks at it and goes, I'm just going to maintain for a while. Or I'm, it's off season. I'm just going to do enough just to, just to you know, uh, eliminate the guilt from not doing anything. Or I'm just going to stay busy and work up a sweat. When you take the maintenance mindset, it's not going to end with that workout or that phase of workout is going to carry over in a negative way. So even if, for instance, you're injured and you can't do the things you would normally do, you have to take a proactive, productive mindset from the standpoint and not just hard work. Everybody thinks they're working hard. That's the, that's the other aspect that's probably changed for me a lot in the past or from the past is that I used to think it was about working hard. As long as you're busting your butt, as long as you're, you know, you feel, you know, like you're doing, you're, you know, working hard to at least do more than the other guy, as an example, that that's what it, that's all that mattered. And that perceived fatigue, for instance, is not a good sign of productivity. So my perspective from, say, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, has gotten sharpened in the sense of productivity, especially when you're dealing with an elite athlete. Um, and again, I use Jaden as an example. I don't want to just throw a bunch of work at Jaden or any athlete like Jaden because two things. Number one is he's going to develop an indifferent mindset if we do that. If the things, if we're not doing things that he understands are specific, specific to getting him better, then mentally he's not going to be bought in. Then from a physical standpoint, all we're doing is creating fatigue that he doesn't need when he goes back into his specific practice for his sport. So that could end up being a negative and make him more predisposed to an injury because he's just going back tired. You're going to get fatigued from training no matter what it is, but you don't want to have that indiscriminate work that you do just to say, hey, I'm really working hard, but it's not productive work. It needs to be productive to have any true effectiveness in my opinion. 
So looking at ass assessing um, an athlete, when you're, when you're looking at a player, um, whether it's Jaden or it's one of the NFL guys you've worked with in the past, uh, when, you're, when you're looking at that athlete, talking to that athlete and, 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 and having that conversation about what their goals are and then obviously what your observations are, what, what factors into your assessments of programming for them that, that basically shapes or, or that you are able to shape specifically targeted to their goals? Like what, what kind of factors are you looking at uh, in terms of, of creating the right programming for their specific, you know, body as well as, as goals and, and ambitions? The primary things you have to take into account from day one are obviously the sport that they play and the specific position of their sport. For instance, if we're talking about a goalkeeper compared to a midfielder, you know, or you know, in, in football, a quarterback compared to a defensive lineman. I mean, it's the examples are so so many that we don't need to get into them. But the, so it's not just the sport; it's the specific demands of that sport. Then you have to look at their body type. You have to look and make a, an assessment. I'm not a big fan of standardized assessments, meaning um, like the functional movement screens. I think that they work great with big groups where you, you don't have the time to really lay eyes on an athlete on a continuous or, or an individual on a continuous basis and have time to assess them every time. You need to make that one-time assessment and then design a program and go, okay, you need to do more posterior chain work. You need to, um, you're hypermobile here. You don't need to do any kind of stretching or anything right now. We need to focus on stability. Those types of standardized, standardized testings can give you some of that quick information that's better than not doing it. I don't like relying on those for individuals because I could test the same individual three times within the first week, and there's going to be some variance on all three of those tests. And so for me, it's like it gives me kind of a false positive or a false negative where I'm, I, I'm really at a, now I've got to just basically start over again when I do that because there, there things are going to change. And, and so when I design, a program is going to be based off of the principles like I mentioned earlier, just where, you know, we're always going to do a lower body hip dominant, lower body quad dominant, um, meaning a, a deadlift a variation, a squat variation, find one that is not going to be compressive to their spine or is going to have the minimal um, negative chance of any type of negative happening. Uh, upper body push, upper body pull, and upper body vertical push, and upper body vertical pull. So that, that is the simplest, most reliable way to start a program. Now, from there, it's going to be very specific to what sport that they're playing and also their body type, as well as their age, their age and their mindset. Again, we use an athlete that's 14 and he's already very mature mentally. He can do some things that maybe an 18-year-old is really going to struggle with because of the psychological difference in their maturity. So it's one of those things where it, you have to take all of those into account. And once again, you can't find that on a standardized assessment. It's going to be a um, start with this program and then lay eyeballs on them, watch their body language, and then communicate with them. Are you getting pain when you do that exercise? If it's a constant, a consistent, every time I do this, coach, you know, my hip hurts. Well, you don't go, well, just tough it out. You know, just go, go lighter. Go light. There's always these quick you know, answers that a lot of um, incompetent coaches will give thinking, okay, we'll just do something anyway, you know, just keep doing it because I don't know a solution other than what I've given you. I've given you the standardized program. So I don't know where to go from here. So just um, go lighter or don't do the exercise at all where I'm a solution oriented coach, which I think any competent coach is where you look at it and you go, okay, this is causing pain or this is causing one of those things where you just go, this doesn't feel right when I do this. Well, if you're an Olympic weightlifter, you got to use the barbell. If you're not, you may not ever have to touch a barbell. If you're a power lifter, you got to use a barbell. If you're not, we may never touch a barbell. So those are things that I take into consideration. If you're someone that has an aptitude for that, you're not a competitive lifter, but you love the barbell and you really connect with it and your technique is good, then we'll base the majority of your program around the barbell because that's something that you connect with. So that has a lot to do with the assessment process, Daniel, in that you've got to find specificity, but you've also got to find what the athlete is going to connect to because that's the only way they're going to be not only 
consistent. I mean, they may show up every workout, but they're not going to really give everything. There's going to be a level of indifference. Like I'm just here, just putting my time in. And that's why I can't stand the word grind because, you know, everybody thinks they're grinding. And I understand there's some good connotations to that. And I'm not saying every time somebody says that word, that something is a, it's a negative word. But the thing is, it's not just about showing up and working hard. It's about being productive. And sometimes the tool that you're using is not the best tool. Sometimes you just need to be using resistance bands instead of using free weights. And other times you need to be using free weights instead of resistance bands. I mean, it's a matter of finding out what it is that's causing that athlete to get better as opposed to just doing busy work. So it, it sounds to me, listening uh, to you describe this from a process standpoint, um, that there's a lot of artistry to the science, that there's a lot of, you know, tweaking and, and monitoring and, and, and observations that factor into, you know, an assessment of a player and a proper program and, you know, and, and that there's a lot of things that go into that beyond just, hey, here's a program, run this for 30 days, and then you can go and do this, and, and then we'll tweak it in a few weeks or whatever. One of the things you've, you've, you've mentioned a few times that's a part of this process and, and your evaluations of an athlete that you're working with is psychology. You've, you've talked about their mentality. How important is that as a factor in terms of their, their, uh, training as well as, you know, their mental edge in, in being an athlete. You mentioned for yourself, for example, about how that gave you an edge when you were, when you were playing sports uh, in high school, for example. So how, how big and critical a component is psychology and the mental uh, aspect of this in, in terms of an athlete development performance and, and your work with those athletes? The psychology aspect is the ignition switch and as well as the rudder as well as the governor i mean it's going to it's going to provide not only the start the the initiation and some people go well that's not true i didn't have any psychology training when i played high school well there was a level of you either feeling either peer pressured into doing it or, or there was some level of psychology involved in that so you have to have it's not enough to know the what you need to know the why. And that's something that even at an early, early, early age, if you don't address the why, and you're always dealing with individuals, especially athletes with the what, just do this, just do that. And they don't have an understanding that then where the psychology comes in, Daniel, is clarity. Athletes will always be at their best with clarity. That does not imply perfection. There's a difference in having clarity and then things being perfect. Like, for instance, if you take an NFL quarterback that's, you know, one of the best at running the two-minute drill, say a Tom Brady, he – it's not a perfect environment for him. Now, he will tell you he's in a zone and that he has complete clarity in the midst of chaos, whereas we're watching it from the outside going, you know, he's on the one-yard line. He's on his own one-yard line. He's got a minute 45 to score. Well, it's the guys that have clarity that that's when they're at their best, not just where they're able to tolerate that environment. They're always at their best in that environment. You learn that in training. You learn that not just when you're out on the soccer field, the football field, the basketball court, or in the ring. You're going to learn that in the training process of having clarity about why am I doing this? Why am I doing, you know, and so it's, so it's the, it's the, okay, what? I, I get that. However, it's the why that's going to bring the highest quality to the what. I know it's a little bit deep, but it's the, it goes right back to the psychology is paramount. The psychology is what's going to separate good from great. If you have a really good athlete and then also great from elite, you know, what separates the, um, the Michael Jordan from the guy that was really good in college and then never made it to the NBA, and he was phenomenal in college. It's not lack of talent. It's not right situation. It's not, you know, the right coaches. It's not, it's if you really wanted to peel it back, you would go, it's the mental aspect of that. It's that 
some people call it the killer instinct. There are all kinds of names we've given it over the years, but it always comes back to clarity. It's like, who would you rather not be in the ring with if it was a fight to death? The guy that has such clarity that he will not give up or the guy that's never lost a match before? You know, the guy that's the best fighter, but you know you could probably get to him mentally. Possibly you could break him mentally. Or is it the guy that you go, this guy won't give up. He's got such clarity. I'm going to have to kill him or he's going to kill me. I know it's kind of a gruesome example, but my point is, is that it's the one, it's the one that has the clarity that's always going to be the best they can be. Now, they might, may not be as talented. So if they don't win every time, like somebody, some of the other guys, you go, well, and you point to him and you go, well, that psychology hasn't gotten him too far because they look at him. He's not as good as so-and-so. Well, the point is he's at his best. So he's tapped into more of his potential, his or her potential, than the one that does not have that clarity that maybe has more gifts from a physical standpoint. And our job, we can't control that. We can't control the actual genetics that we have. What we can control is the degree or the percentage of those genetics that we tap into. So that's always going to be the psychological part. Now, are there great athletes that have not tapped into that psychological um, clarity that we absolutely there are guys that have got but you don't know how good they could have been or those are a lot of the times those are those athletes Daniel that we see get to a certain level of greatness if you will and then they sabotage that greatness they, they end up falling off you go what happened to them you know how did that happen a good example is a Tiger Woods Tiger Woods was you know phenomenal he was I mean all that he, he set the new standard in golf the sport had never seen anybody like him and then not only because of the physical injuries, well, a lot of it was the physical part because, and this is getting off on a whole nother, but it's applicable to every athlete. Tiger Woods overtrained doing things, again, that he did not need to be doing to be a great golfer. He was running an enormous amount of mileage every, every week. He was tearing his body down. He was doing a lot of really unproductive weight training practices that he could have still been training in strength training, but in a more efficient way that was applicable to golf. He chose to create his own identity at how hard he was working. He was trying to train like a Navy SEAL. He was trying to push himself. So there was something missing in him that he was trying to get from that training. It tore his body down, adversely affecting his golf. Then he started making some very unwise personal decisions in his life that have become very or infamous. And you see that whole, that stuff, it's not just coincidence. A lot of that ties in. But then the other side of that is look at it now. Look at how he's responded to that as opposed to going into that infamy and staying there. He's come back at it and he won the Masters last year. So he's a great example that I point to of a guy that had all of the physical attributes, seemingly had the psychological part down, but had not gotten that personal clarity as of yet and then started making some bad decisions from his training um, perspective as well as in his personal life ultimately because of being injured. You start making some bad decisions. You sabotage your career. All of your greatness you lose, but instead of him crawling in a hole, look at what he did. He went back to his roots, which were always a good thing, and then he's responded in a way that's brought that greatness to a whole nother level where we now know of him as somebody even greater than when he was on that path as a, at an early age. We now think back to that last Masters that he won and the response of the people that migrated to him and go, wow, that right there is absolute greatness, not only from an athletic standpoint, but from a human standpoint. Absolutely, and I love that example. Um, it, was a, it was a really cool, I, I've uh, watched uh, many times some of the, the, the different YouTube videos where people were out you know, at the masters, you know, kind of doing these selfie videos of tiger and, and they put some of them together into like one clip where he, he goes to kind of sink the final putt and the crowd's going nuts. Um, you know, there's just, there's, there's never been a golfer, uh, like him that's been able to command the audience the way he had, uh, and then be to be able to, to come back again and do it. I thought was really special. Um, one of the, the, the areas I wanted to ask you about is, is in relation to American soccer, for example, there's a, there's a big uh, focus because it's probably the easiest thing to do, which is to focus on bigger, faster, and stronger. 
so, you know, if you show up for, uh, to coach a team, for example, and you, you might see some kids that are, you know, more developed than others have developed sooner. You got puberty, puberty, you've got, you know, kids growing at different stages, et cetera. So it's, a, it's real easy to go, oh, well, that kid's big, that kid's fast, that kid's strong. He's got to be the best player. Um, whether or not he can actually handle the soccer ball or not is, it, it is not even part of that equation. It's just like, well, he's, he's big, he's fast, he's strong. And he might be right now. It may not be in four years as other kids develop and, and they may or may not apply them their own uh, journeys and pathways in terms of development. Um, as someone who's, who has worked with players that are in that kind of phase of life um, where you're growing at different uh, stages, um, you know, even though for, for the, the scout or the coach who may see a player and, and it might be easy for them to identify bigger, faster, stronger, the individual athletes are all kind of growing at their own pace. They're, you know, you don't know where they're going to end up at 13, 14 years old. You might have an idea, but they're certainly not fully developed, and at least most of them are not going to be fully developed uh, around that age and then and then going into the high school years how important is it for young athletes to I know it's difficult and I know it's hard but how important is it for them to not get caught up in the same trap as a lot of adults do focusing on the bigger faster stronger especially at this phase of their development and instead you know, as much as possible and with, and with people like you be able to focus on themselves, bettering themselves, developing themselves and, and, you know, practicing some patience because it's genetics. It's not like you're going to, you know, it's, it's a life cycle. You're not going to all of a sudden, you know, wake up tomorrow and, and you're Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, I mean, uh, I, I've, I've told players before, I've even talked to Jaden about this before. I mean, go back and look at pictures of him when he first went to Sporting Lisbon in Portugal, uh, uh, in his own home country of Portugal, long before his Manchester United days or Real Madrid or Juventus. You know, he was a scrawny little kid and, and you know, he, he was working, he couldn't see it, right? The public didn't see it. The public had no idea who this kid was going to become. Uh, later on as a man, um, uh, even just from a physical standpoint. Um, and, and so it's easy to judge when you walk up to a sporting event and you see a kid who's just at 14, 15, 16 years old. I like, mean, that kid's a stud. But other kids may not develop by that time. They may get there eventually. Uh, and sometimes they may not at all, right? So how important is it for an individual – when they're developing and growing up, they focus on themselves and the things they can control versus getting caught up in kind of this comparison trap. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's one of the most challenging aspects, especially when you have a kid that's really dedicated to the sport. When they're, they're doing everything within their ability to be the best that they can be, no matter what youth sport it is, especially. And then even in the high school, the earlier parts of high school. And it goes right back to the word clarity again in communication. And just like what you touched on, um, Daniel, is to give them an example of someone that has been that route, as well as to use the, the house building example and go, okay, let's drive up and we're looking at, a, at an empty lot. Does that look like something you could live in? You know, no. I mean, you know, okay, well, why? Well, it's not a house. You know, okay, well, guess what? Every house started like that. You know, every house looked just like that. And then the foundation, um, how exciting is it to watch them put the foundation up? I mean, well, it's not. It's not until you get the flat screen TVs and you start putting all the rooms together and everything. Everybody's like, yeah, now we can, you know, but it, but without the foundation, none of that matters. So it's, communicating and then exactly what you said exp or communicate. I don't want to say explain because explain can go over their head. You've got to find a way to communicate with them that this is what is in your command. This is what are in your control. Take command of what you control and then get good at letting go. You're not going to, it's not going to be a natural thing to let go of the things that you don't control. You're going to look, see the kid that's bigger than you faster and you can jump higher than you. There's no doubt that's going to, but use that more as an 
as an inspiration, not as something that just motivates you because you can't use the other guy to make you work harder. When people say, oh, when I see that, this makes me work hard. That goes, that goes right. That's a, that's a trap. That goes right back into exactly what you're referring to about just focusing on things you can control. Well, you don't want to tell a kid, Hey, you know, when you see them and they're bigger than you, faster than you, that'll make you work that much harder. That'll, we'll see that once again, that's putting the control in the other kid than the other kids. So we don't want to get into that comparison trap, even if we are doing it with good intentions. We want to look at it as you're in the process of building this house and your house done this way is going to have a stronger foundation because you're having to go about it in a more deliberate way, whereas they're able to get away with some mistakes and our errors and flaws and compromises that eventually is going to come back and bite them. So you're not only going to get to a level that they're at, you'll, you have the opportunity to surpass them even when they continue to progress because they've skipped over some steps that they could have done. Now, if they come back and say, well, they're working out hard too, and they're training hard too. So I know they're still doing everything, but it's still, they haven't had to take that slower path that develops the foundation with a more assured reliability. See, so that's the thing. So yeah, the other guy may be over there working hard, not denying that. So it's not like you can point over at the guy that's more naturally gifted and always be able to say, well, they don't work hard because they may be working hard, but they haven't had to address the same things that the guy that's slower to progress, the kid that's slower to progress, you, get, you communicate to them that they're gonna have an advantage by having to go a slower, more deliberate path, a more patient path, let that see. Then they turn what's a negative into something that can work in their favor. It's not going to happen in a day. You've got to continue as a parent and as a coach, continue to reinforce that. The one thing you want to again stay away from is, well, you're the little small guy on the team, man. I mean, you need to always just be, you know. Um, looking at them like you know you, the small guy can always win the small don't go there with that you know don't go to the you know um david and goliath thing that can only work for so long because eventually that kid's going to identify with that inferiority and so it may work for a little while but you don't want them always taking that little brother mindset because eventually they're going to have to leave that behind and so it's better to early on just ingrain in them, this is what you can do. This is where we are. This is how you're getting better. As long as you're going to get 1% better today, you're on the right path. You're on the right track. You're going to get to where you want to get because also they're going to get complacent. This, this other guy, these other kids that are just more naturally gifted, there's a point where they're going to take the foot off the accelerator. Guess what? You're keeping your foot on the accelerator with a steady pressure. So you're going to not only catch up, you'll surpass them and then they won't have what you have to catch back up with you because you've developed all those attributes and those skills, especially the mental aspect of it here early on. They didn't have to develop those like you did. So see, you flip, you change the narrative from, oh no, I'm not as good. I'm not as fast. I'm not developing as much. I haven't hit puberty. I don't have, you know, they look older than me. Their voice is changing. I mean, all the things that, that some kids will point to. And then you, you flip that narrative and say, no, you're developing in a way that's going to have a stronger foundation than them. So on that end, yeah, there's a little bit of competitiveness in that one. And I said, don't be in the, the compare um, or comparison in that. Don't be in the comparison game. You don't need to do that every day, but you need to let them know that by them doing it this way, that they're going to have the advantage, not just over one other kid, but the advantage in the way that they're going to be able to progress and go forward and go into high school, go into college, go into the professional ranks, if that's where they chose to go or choose to go. Because the best guys are always the ones that did it that way consistently. Yeah, you'll have some outliers that are just naturally gifted, but usually those guys that have had to apply themselves early on and sustain that type of work ethic somewhere along the line they've had that kind of challenge where they've had to do something that maybe some other kids didn't have to do. So that's the thing that you emphasize with them is that you've got an advantage. You may not know it yet, but you're going to have an advantage. How important is adversity to uh, athletes who excel? Um, you know, this concept of adversity, it could be your home life. It could be the fact that you were not the biggest, fastest, strongest when you were smaller. It might be, uh, you know, uh, 
financial situation in your family. I mean, there's a, there's all sorts of things. It could be the fact that you, you don't, you don't win every trophy as a kid and it drives you, whatever the case may be, but how important is adversity in shaping and building resilient and, and high performing athletes who are able to, uh, you know, have good, uh, and long and, you know, careers that excel. I'm not going to give you the popular answer with that because the popular answer would be, or the, the standard company line would be, Oh, adversity makes you better. Adversity is always a good thing. Well, how much adversity, you know, I mean, how, I mean, in other words, where do we define, Oh, it's good for a kid to be without you know, food on the table. It's good for a kid to be without. The reality is I've trained plenty of kids that have lived in adversity that are loaded with talent that wind up in really bad situations in their adult life. So they did not benefit from the adversity. I've known kids that have dealt with adversity that have thrived. I've known kids that did not have much adversity. They pretty much lived, um, you know, without any concern about knowing where anything was ever going to come from that turned out not only to be good athletes, great athletes going and playing college, but ended up being really good people. So the adversity thing, it always comes back to this, Daniel. If adversity can eliminate indifference, it's a good thing. If having everything done for you and having everything available for you creates indifference, it's a bad thing. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching the show today. Thanks to uh, Vince for joining us uh, for that interview. We're gonna, we are going to have part two of that interview on the show tomorrow, talking through some things about high performance athletes and performance training. Uh, just some really good insight, I think, uh, for you to, to think about. And uh, tomorrow, as we get to part two, we'll talk through even more. Thanks for watching the show. As always, you can watch at danielworkman.com forward slash watch. We'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye.